Good morning, church family. So good to see you. If you are visiting with us today, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us for worship, and it's neat to see some old friends who are visiting, like the Doctormans. Shout-outs to the Doctormans down there. What a joy it is to see you today. Well, my name is Scott Rosencrantz. I'm a longtime member here, and if you're joining us, we've been studying the book of Luke as a congregation. And so if you take out your Bible or your Bible app and you turn to or scroll to uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, I'll read it. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Now, on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is God's word for us today. All glory be to the Lord. Here's some words. Virus, epidemic, social distancing, quarantine, infected. Maybe to you they sound a little bit distant, but familiar. 2,500 years ago, we might have used different words. Pestilence, plague, cast out, unclean. Our passage today concerns 10 men with skin diseases. The particular disease relevant to this passage is leprosy, which in the Bible actually describes or could describe a number of skin diseases ranging from something as relatively mild as eczema or something as horrible as what we now know as Hansen's disease, a skin disorder that causes lesions and nerve damage and which can lead to terrible infection, injury, or disfigurement. This passage almost feels like a parable. Instead of 10 virgins or 10 coins, we get 10 lepers. And while all of the lepers make the right choice, to ask the Lord for mercy, for his pity, one of the ten experiences the full healing that comes with faith in the Lord. Other than the ethnic background of one of the men, a Samaritan, we know almost nothing about their lives other than their immediate condition. They have a disease that is bad enough to exclude them from their wives, children, community, and work. 
They are sick and desperate. And so they come to the Lord when they see him. The disease these poor men have, in short, has alienated them and kept them at a distance from virtually all of life's blessings. It's hard to know exactly what these men feel at the beginning of this passage, but my guess is that they feel as if they have been cursed. And I think that's a good place to start. So for those of you taking notes, uh, you can outline this sermon as follows. Curse and blessing, distance and nearness, and the one who stood at a distance. One of the major dichotomies in the Old Testament is the dichotomy of curse and blessing. Today, if we use those words at all, we might see them in a hashtag like hashtag blessed or, you know, some hobby lobby wall art. We might see blessings. Um, and those aren't bad things uh, at all. Those are uh, expressions of something good. But the word curse, we probably don't see that word very much. We, we might talk about curse words if that's an idiom people still use. Um, or maybe if we read Harry Potter, we might see uh, the word curse occasionally. They don't necessarily uh, represent categories that we use from day to day. Yet, I would say that these are foundational concepts that help us to understand the Old Testament in general, and I think they're helpful concepts for this passage in particular. So, not knowing a lot about the lives of these ten lepers, I want to go back all the way back to what we do know, that they, like all of us, in some respect, live under a curse. All the way back in Genesis 3, we see the consequences of the serpent's deception and of Adam and Eve's, Eve's sin, a curse. In Genesis 3.14, God curses the serpent. In verse 16, he tells Eve the consequences of her sin under the curse. And in verse 17, Adam's consequences. And God also curses the ground in verse 17. Lastly and poetically, we get these words in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Practically speaking, the curse means a life of pain and strife terminating in death. The ultimate consequence of the curse is death. Now, interestingly enough, in reading this passage in Genesis 3, Almost every aspect of the curse has a, a similar quality, and that quality is a relational quality. And I think that is, the under, uh, is key for us understanding the idea of a curse in the Bible and also, consequently, blessing. Virtually every aspect of the curse shows a broken or discordant relationship, broken relationships between people and God's creatures, people and other people, people and the earth, people and God, and with death, even people 
and their own bodies. It's all about relational brokenness. And of course, Genesis 3 ends with Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden, uh, severing their blessings that they enjoyed there. And in reading Genesis from there out, we see that the curse extends to all the descendants of Adam. We see the evil, sinful hearts of man perpetuating and amplifying the curse and its consequences from Cain killing his brother, man and his pride in building the Tower of Babel, pagan worship of all other gods, and the consequences of sin uh, resulting in all sorts of relational brokenness. We see lots of death. And disease in the Old Testament is a sign of the curse. Sin led to the curse. Disease again and again is a sign of the curse because it's a sign of death. Now, the disease in this passage is leprosy. And the first time we see leprosy in the Bible isn't in Leviticus. It happens in Exodus 4 when the Lord calls Moses to stand up to Pharaoh. The Lord is showing Moses some signs that he can show Pharaoh because Moses does not feel confident about his task at standing up to the world's most powerful man. The first sign is throwing his staff on the ground and it becomes a snake and then transfigures back into a staff again. And the second sign the Lord gives is a curious one. It involves leprosy. And the Lord said to him, Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, the hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that's the sign of the staff and the snake, they may believe the latter sign. Okay, what is this all about? This is, uh, if you've been doing our church reading plan, uh, we've definitely encountered several head scratchers in the Bible. It's kind of a weird miracle, this kind of Napoleon, put your hand in here, and then it's a leprous hand, put it again. It seems almost like a parlor trick, but God isn't asking Moses to pull a coin from out behind Pharaoh's ear or something. Uh, It's not a parlor trick, okay? Um, Think about it. Moses is God's chosen leader of the slave class in Egypt, and he's called to rise up against the most powerful man in the world. Who is the God of these Hebrew Israelite slaves to Pharaoh? Okay, Pharaoh had his own gods, and they brought him quite a bit of prosperity. To Pharaoh, Moses' God is inconsequential. Unless, of course, that God can demonstrate a power that would shake the foundations of the mighty Egypt or any empire. If a snake can't do it, Some other sign can. Plague. And of course, that's what we see in the Exodus Exodus narrative. But the first sign we get is this plague of leprosy. 
The disease is a sign. It's a reminder of the curse in the world. And it's a reminder of the things that people don't necessarily have control over. It's a sign that signifies death. And of course, we know that the act that triggered this kind of death is a result of sin. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death, and people now enslaved by sin will earn every penny of that wage by struggling and dying under the curse. Lots of death. God's story does not end there. For there, though the wages of sin are, is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All praise be to God. You see, the Bible is not only about the curse. The Bible is about God's showing mercy to mankind, restoring a remnant of His uh, people to the blessed state they were meant for, a state of nearness to God. In the midst of the cursed world, God blesses Noah, we see, and then He blesses Abraham, and to Abraham He gives a great blessing. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see in Exodus the fulfillment of this first part of the blessing. God delivers his enslaved people. He makes them a great nation. And like all nations, when he's establishing his people, they have laws. But what makes this great nation uh, great is the one true God they serve. And their laws are his laws. And his laws are meant in part to mitigate the effects of the curse, the effects of sin, the effects of uncleanliness and death, and to encourage a state of blessing, holiness, being cleansed, and life. And if you've been reading along with us in our Bible reading, you've gotten to the section in Leviticus, which is about skin disease. Seemingly endless chapters about skin disease. Now, to our contemporary ears, all these laws about disease may seem like just TMI, right? Too much information. Uh, at the very least, they seem tedious. They, they might even seem, it's kind of embarrassing. Or you might be thinking, when David said, I delight in the law of the Lord day and night, was it, it couldn't have been this, could it? This is what he delights in? Um, well, I think we need to have a little bit of humility when we approach the Bible, at least I do, because we live in a time and place in history where so many of the effects of the curse are diminished and minimized. Uh, in 1921, just over 100 years ago, the average age for a man in the United States was 60. 100 years later, it's 73. For women, 62 and 79. This is not the case in the ancient world. Disease still inspires fear, but just the sheer numbers of, of, 
uh, death were so much higher in the ancient world. And so, in the Old Testament, God made laws concerning issues that we might now take for granted, specifically laws concerning leprosy and other diseases. We also get laws about mildew. We get laws about uh, bodily emissions. And these types of laws have a couple of purposes. They have a practical purpose and a theological purpose. The Old Testament scholar Benjamin Shaw put it this way, the practical aspect is that these regulations were part of the directions that God gave his people in order to set them apart from the surrounding nations who do not know God. As Deuteronomy 4.6 puts it, the laws will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. The theological aspect is that this material was provided to teach the people truths about themselves, about God, and about their relationship to Him. So the laws function both practically and theologically as a sort of public service announcement. Now, do I have any other children of the 1980s in here? Children of the 80s? Okay, this was the golden age of the public service announcement. Uh, if you were a latchkey kid like myself, uh, you had a lot of access to half-hour-long afternoon cartoons that you could not navigate away from. That's back when TV had a fixed schedule. So you'll remember these cartoons, He-Man, Thundercats, Transformers, GoBots, and my favorite, everyone's favorite, G.I. Joe. So often at the end of the G.I. Joe episode, there'd be this awesome public service announcement, always kind of the same story, where you know, some boy is in mortal danger. His sleeve catches fire by the campfire, and Chief teaches him to stop, drop, and roll. A kid falls out of a boat, and Deep Six uh, teaches him to tread water. A kid falls out of a crummy treehouse he made, um, and then Swift Kicked, catches him as he falls and reminds him that anything worth doing is worth planning. So each of these PSAs ends with the res rescued child saying the same thing. Now I know. And what does the carefully product-placed action hero tell him? Knowing is half the battle. Okay? Knowing is half the battle. And as every boy who played with G.I. Joe's of the 80s knows that as he is uh, playing with his, with his action figures on his um, bedroom floor, the other half of the battle is violence. <laughs> Lots of violence, okay? Um, so, uh, we... The, the PSAs serve their purpose, though. They, they were meant to give good advice about how you ought to live your life and avoid danger and avoid death. So God, in the Old Testament, gives the law practically to help people know this, okay? Practically to help people avoid and mitigate the effects of sin. So 
you might read something about mildew and think, does God really care that much about my shower curtain? You know, um, not my shower curtain. My my shower curtains are clean as the driven snow. But uh, you, you might, but you might also recognize that mildew is something that can fester and grow and destroy. And practically, when you see that in the corner of your tent, it's best to burn it. But theologically, these symbols of the curse, disease, mildew, mold, can also remind us and are often in Scripture connected to sin. And it's their signs of sin. This is not to say that a particular sin will guarantee the outcome of a particular disease, although some diseases are caused by sin. But it is to say that sin and disease are a sign of the curse. They're a sign of death. So the law gives practical and theological guidelines, advice on how to make someone ceremonially and morally right with God that they might approach God, but the law does not fully protect people from sin and death. The law cannot fully prevent the distance that comes from the curse. And that brings us to my next point, distance and nearness. In our passage today, we see ten men calling out to the Lord, but behind these men is a whole history of mankind standing, diseased, unclean, dying, and cursed at a distance. In this passage, we see a particular of their pitiable state. More likely than not, they'd exhausted all the good advice the law gives them concerning quarantine. And if you read Leviticus, it's a long process after you have a skin disease to come back in. It involves being checked, it involves quarantine, it involves several types of sacrifices. It is tedious. These guys, we can assume, have done that, have done the process, and still are not clean. Their physical appearances would likely guarantee that no one would go near them. Maybe their family might drop food off for them. And the law dictated that they announce that they are unclean when they came into the presence of other people. So they were likely despairing and hopeless. But the Lord came near to them. Interestingly enough, the Lord was on his way to Jerusalem. But on the path, this trip down into Galilee, in Nazareth, this was a little bit more, or Samaria, this is more of like a detour. It wasn't a as the crows flies kind of a trip. Jesus came near to them first. Now, concerning these guys, we don't get a lot of details, uh, but we can assume that the process of going to show themselves to the priests involved a cleansing, and we can assume that they all knew this, because after all, if you'd been living with a horrible skin disease, you'd probably know if it was going away, and even if you weren't looking at your own skin, you're with nine other guys, and you might know that it was going away. 
So they were all being obedient and doing what Jesus asked them to do, but one broke the protocol. He came back. The passage says uh, he came back, and not only to the place where he was at a distance, he came back praising God, and he came back to the feet of Jesus himself. He came near. Luke gives us um, more detail. He buries the lead a little bit. He came near, and he was a Samaritan. So, you've probably noticed in our last few chapters of Luke that the passage, uh, some of the passages feel a little bit jumpy. It's not exactly clear when the teachings and the interactions with the Pharisees and the healings and the side-to-bar discussions with his disciples all fit together. When commentators group this story with a, a larger section of Scripture, they usually group it with Jesus' teaching of God's kingdom and its fulfillment up through chapter 8, verse 18, verse 8. And what's the connection? Well, this Samaritan gives us a picture of the kind of person who can be in God's kingdom. This Samaritan has a less-than identity in the culture, and that less-than identity is important in Jesus' teachings. You know, it would be one thing if a God-fearing Jew had a chronic skin disease and, and he came back to Jesus. But this guy, he represented an apostate, quasi-Jewish, not completely law-abiding religion. Maybe Jesus' own disciples thought, this guy's a Samaritan. Maybe he deserved that disease. It's hard to know. But the difference between the one and the nine is important. That one was a Samaritan, and let's assume the other nine were uh, law-abiding Jews. The one represents what the sociologist Susan Friend Harding once called the repugnant cultural other. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. A person in society who by their very existence represents some ideas that are detestable. And so they're written off. Maybe we can relate to that in some ways in a time where there's a lot of polarization in our culture. Maybe we can relate to the idea that, well, some people, they wouldn't be interested in what God has for them. Why even try? Here, the Samaritan who the Lord heals skips the process of going to get confirmation from the priest, for it's the priest's role to pronounce the leper as clean. And Jesus responds to this man's actions with three, word, uh, three questions. We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? And has nobody returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? The cumulative effect of this kind of questioning, I believe, is this. Jesus is saying, the least of these guys gets it. This Samaritan gets it. This guy knows. This Samaritan understands something about me and my kingdom that the other guys completely missed. 
This guy has seen something that these other guys were blind to. So, this distant Samaritan, doubly cursed, comes to the Lord, and he is doubly blessed. He receives God's blessing through the Lord. What the law could not do, the good advice the law could not uh, help him with, Jesus could. The law could not make this man right, but Jesus could and did make him right. And friends, that's exactly what the Lord has come to do. Jesus himself announced it back in chapter 4 of Luke when he inaugurated his ministry and he read from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down in the place of a rabbi. Jesus came to bless those who were poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. Those who suffered the most from the curse. And he was able to do what the law couldn't do. The law gave good advice. Jesus brought good news. The law told us how we should behave, but it set up an impossibly high standard, and we could not meet God's righteous perfection through the law. But Jesus can, and Jesus uh, did. And how did Jesus do this? How did Jesus bring us near to God? How did Jesus do what the law could not? Well, Jesus was willing to be the one who stood at a distance. We can't miss the shadow that hangs over this whole passage. The passage begins with the end in mind. Now, when he was on his way to Jerusalem. Kenny referenced this last week, but it bears repeating. To Luke's original audience, the phrase, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, basically means when he was on the way to the cross. That's what we should hear, when Jesus is on the way to the cross. Jesus is able to allow sinners to draw near. He is able to heal them. He is able to bring outsiders into his kingdom because he was willing to humble himself to become sin for us. At the cross, the Lord became the repugnant cultural other to both the Jews and the Gentiles who humiliated him, tortured him, and killed him. He was killed and cast out from the holy city. On that hill outside the walls, Golgotha, he laid upon himself the burden of our sin. 
And in doing so, he distanced himself from the closest and eternal, most eternal relationship that has ever existed, the perfect relationship that he had within the Holy Trinity and with his Father. He became the sacrifice that would make us all clean, us who would ask for his mercy. He would stand at a distance on the cross for your sake and mine, offering forgiveness, the free gift of God, and eternal life in him. He took on the curse that we might be blessed, that ancient curse that created all the distance, by God's grace became his alone to bear. And he bore that curse to hell and delivered it where it belonged. And he struck the head of the serpent and took away death's eternal sting. And we know this because he rose again, what the Bible calls the first fruits of the eternal blessing of an imperishable body, an eternal body that will never again know disease and decay. We who are in Christ have this to look forward to. Death is not the end of our story here on earth. We will have renewed bodies, and we too will live, and we will be close to the Lord. Jesus rose again and came near once again to his disciples and to others, and he revealed in himself the glory uh, that is his, and he revealed himself in the scriptures, and he ascended again, and he came near once again to his Father. But he did not leave us distance, in the distance. He did not leave us to simply remember him without help. He sent his Holy Spirit who animates us towards love and good deeds, who writes his law on our hearts, who gives us the faith to die to ourselves and to live to Jesus, who comforts us in a fallen world where we still see the curse. The Holy Spirit makes our blind eyes see He helps us to live for Christ. And he enlivens our hearts to participate in the life of the body of Christ. We can come to the feet of Jesus, but we are nearer still, church. We are in Jesus. We are his hands and feet by God's grace. We're not bound by the burden of the good advice, but we are given the good news, and we live by the good news, and we are free, and we are blessed, and all that I have described is blessing upon blessing upon blessing in Jesus Christ. There's not enough space on our walls to hang how huge this blessing is. And it keeps going and going. We can approach him. You can approach him. You are not unclean in Christ. So the question is, 
Do you stand at a distance from the Lord today? Or are you near to Him? Today's passage shows us that the difference between the distant and the nearer isn't about how good you are or how good you've been. It isn't about how clean you are. The difference is this. Are you like the one who was not only humble enough to ask for God's mercy, are you humble enough to move towards Him in faith? Maybe you're in here and you've never made a public profession of faith. Maybe like the nine, you've experienced some of the benefits and blessings of the Lord without actually drawing near to Him. Maybe you still stand at a distance. If this describes you, I I invite you to come talk to me or uh, one of our prayer team or one of the elders just about what you think or what your questions you have or what you don't know, things you've heard. We want to walk with you and move toward you as we move towards Christ together. Or maybe your heart has grown cold towards the Lord and His work in your life. And maybe the reality of the curse that still operates in the world has been a burden to you. And you're not even sure what it means to draw near to the Lord. I have a very practical suggestion for you, and it may sound like this is coming out of left field. I would suggest you come to the Lord's Supper service tonight, 6 p.m. here after the members meeting. Um, I know it's a Sunday night. I know your house is a mess. Mine is too. Unless you're hosting Grace Group, it's probably in pretty good condition right now. Uh, uh, This is something the Lord has given us to participate in body life together. It's one of the things He's commanded us to do. And it's really good for us to take those elements that represent a nearness that can't get much more near than consuming the body and blood of Christ. That's near. And it's something we do together as a body. And then added benefit is family time afterwards where we catch up with each other and do cool things like commission missionaries. It's a really encouraging time, and I encourage you to go and make that commitment. I know it's an extra event in the weekend, but it's an encouraging one. But outside of that, I encourage you to reach out. There are a number of uh, people in this church who just have gifts at walking through life together and receiving each other tenderly and mercifully. And uh, if you don't know those people, I would love to point you and connect you to those people in this church. This is a place where we want to grow together and move towards Christ together. And not only that, but we as Christians in the hands and feet of Christ can learn from his example and be willing to take the detour and go out of our own way for those who stand at a distance. And I pray that the Lord gives you the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know how to do that in your own life. 
ultimately, we serve a great God family. He has been so, so good to us. He has shown tremendous uh, faithfulness to us, and He has moved towards us. So, let's join together in prayer and take a moment to ask the Lord to apply the message from this passage to your life, and I'll close us in prayer. Have pity on us, O Lord. We praise you for your mercy. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us your spirit, that we might be your hands and feet and move towards you, move towards others, and extend your blessing that you've extended to us, Lord. We say this with hearts of worship and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.